The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Well, I can answer the question and then I also can't answer it because like who was she is is, is part of the, is, is a question that I was really trying to answer when I was researching her. And I don't know that I succeeded. She's very mysterious. And um, there was, a, a, and, and even though I spent, you know, many hours in her archives and reading her diaries and her letters and got some better sense of her, she still really remained very elusive. Mm. You know, I, I, I went looking for some audio of her. I just wanted to get a sense of what her voice was like. And I, you know, there wasn't any that existed. So I, I just want to say that, that like part of her appeal to me was that I couldn't pin her down. Couldn't pin her down. That's New Yorker writer Anna Holmes talking about the children's book author Margaret Wise Brown. Brown is one of the best-selling authors in the world, thanks primarily to one book, Goodnight Moon, which has become a staple on children's bookshelves everywhere. It sold 6,000 copies in its first year, with the influential tastemaker Anne Carol Moore, children's librarian at the New York Public Library, declaring it overly sentimental. Today, 75 years later, it sells nearly a million copies a year. Overly sentimental? Moore's not the only grown-up to dismiss Goodnight Moon, or to be stumped by it, or frustrated, or mystified. But it's not for grown-ups. It's for children. Children whose minds work very differently from adults. They're not just miniature versions of us. They're different. Their brains are not like ours. And Goodnight Moon taps into this, addressing children on their level. Anna Holmes became fascinated with Margaret Wise Brown, the elusive figure who created this book. She wrote a stunning portrait of her in the New Yorker magazine. And she joins us today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here to join us today. Good night, moon. Good night, comb, and good night, brush, and the quiet old lady whispering hush. Add me to the list of parents 
who were absolutely stumped by this book. I read it a million times to my boys, and it gave me a certain feel. I intuited that something was happening with this book that was not like the others. Looking back, I think there was one other book that gave me the same sense, The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. Those were books... Good Night Moon and the Snowy Day, where not much was happening. There wasn't a conflict. There wasn't a story, really. There wasn't a message, a moral. There were sensations and a mood and a feel. But here's the difference. I guessed that the Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats, I could picture Keats, and I was pretty much right. He was a cool guy. He looks cool. With Goodnight Moon, I was completely wrong. The illustrations, I thought, were primitive, kind of a, a joke. I missed that they were actually much more like Matisse than I ever put together. I thought the author of Goodnight Moon was probably an elderly person. Maybe it was her name. Margaret, for us, in the 21st century, is sort of an old person's name. Brown is plain. What could be duller than that? And wise is a little too on the nose, isn't it? I imagined we were dealing with a church lady full of finger-wagging wisdom, thinking she knew what kids wanted, which was something dumbed down and accidentally getting it right. Comb and brush and, and cow jumping over the moon, a bowl full of mush. And yet, the book was entrancing. I couldn't deny it. It was like a meditation. It was that moment when the world would pause and take a breath, and the feeling in that room reading that book to a young child was kind of intoxicating in a way, dreamy. It was a reset button on a busy world. It had and has undeniable power. And then, not only was I wrong about the illustrations, I was wrong about the author. One look at the photo of her in the New Yorker article was enough to tell me that. She's not a church lady with stern eyes and white hair and prim glasses. She looks like the young Catherine Hepburn, vivacious. And in fact, she was full of a zest for life and a passion for children's literature. Not someone who thought she knew best, but who thought children did. Or if not best, at least they had a different way of looking at the world and different needs and different minds. And I've seen all that thanks to Raising Kids, seen it up close. And I only wish I'd seen it sooner when it comes to Goodnight Moon. I would have appreciated this book more and the time that I spent with it. So I would encourage all of you to go read the article. I'm going to kick it off by reading you the first paragraph. But first, we have some podcast business to take care of. We are in our list of thanking countries that have made us the number one books podcast in their homeland. What have we had so far? Croatia, Norway, Algeria, and a bunch of others. I think we're up to nine now, number nine. And guess what? I know you're probably saying, well, how about the United States, Jack? Time to include them, right? Number one books podcast in your own country. That's a biggie. To be sure, as I told you, we peaked at number two in my adopted second country, Italy, so we couldn't thank them just yet. So why not go with the United States? Well, no, not today. I'm not going to do that today because I like to zig when people think I should zag, and also because it's not true. 
<laughs> We've never gotten higher than number 10, <laughs> which is not too shabby, but not part of this project of thanking number one. So instead, we're going to thank what might be the second most extraordinary place I've ever visited after Tibet and also a very cool and very literary country, much cooler than me. In fact, I'm a little overwhelmed that they have pushed us to number one just based on on their coolness and my lack thereof. Yes, that's right. You may have guessed I'm talking about Iceland. Iceland, with its Eddas and skaldic poetry and Haldor laxness, and of course, the Icelandic sagas. Oh, so good. So rich, so smart, and such a fantastic wonderland up there in Iceland, geologically and culturally. I've never seen anywhere quite like it, and I'm so inspired by their geothermal heating, all that hot, clean steam, turning turbines and warming homes. My boys had the time of their lives on our trip to Iceland. We were there on the day that Iceland defeated England in football, and we watched the game in the town square with a few thousand cheering Icelanders. And my boys had their dream meal of hot dogs wrapped in bacon and a couple of Cokes. Good stuff. I like the yogurt and the vistas. Thank you, Iceland. I hope to return soon. So, the first paragraph of this New Yorker article, and this I've seen this praised on the internet already as a model first paragraph. And I agree. Nonfiction writers take note. This is how it's done. You tell me. I'll read it. You tell me. Doesn't this just pull you in and make you want to learn more? Quote, Bruce Handy, in his 2017 book about children's literature, Wild Things, confesses that he always imagined the writer Margaret Wise Brown to be a dowdy old lady, quote, with an ample lap, end quote, just like the matronly bunny from her classic story, Goodnight Moon, who whispers hush as evening darkens a great green room. In fact, Brown was a seductive iconoclast with a Catherine Hepburn mane and a compulsion for ignoring the rules. Anointed by life in 1946 as the world's most prolific picture book writer, she burned through her money as quickly as she earned it, traveling to Europe on ocean liners and spending entire advances on Chrysler convertibles. Her friends called her mercurial and mystical. Though many of her picture books were populated with cute animals, she wore wolfskin jackets, had a fetish for fur, and hunted rabbits on weekends. Her romances were volatile. She was engaged to two men but never married, and she had a decade-long affair with a woman. At the age of 42, she died suddenly in the south of France after a clot cut off the blood supply to her brain. End quote. Mm, what a great first paragraph. What else is there to say? I'm hooked. We'll be talking to the author of that paragraph, Anna Holmes, after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. 
All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor Meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week. Whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is writer and editor Anna Holmes, who is currently the creative director of Higher Ground Audio. She's also the founder of the website Jezebel, a cultural phenomenon and early internet traffic behemoth. Since then, she's been busy with a number of journalistic and creative projects. She's here today to talk about Margaret Wise Brown, the author of children's classics like Goodnight Moon and The Runaway Bunny. Anna's profile of the radical Margaret Wise Brown appears in The New Yorker. Anna Holmes, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thanks for having me. So since you left Jezebel, you've been working on digital storytelling projects and you've been writing for the New York Times and Time Magazine and other publications. And at some point you decided to write about Margaret Wise Brown. When did you become interested in her? I think I first became interested in her in 2016 or 2017. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but I also, my memory (laughs) isn't the best, so I can try and piece together what prompted my interest, which was I bought one of her books, a book that I had really liked as a child for a friend's baby. And that book was called Little Fur Family. Oh, uh-huh. I'd always liked it because it was it was very simple. It had uh, really beautiful, uh, you know, cute illustrations done by Garth Williams, who also illustrated a couple other of her books in addition to illustrating Charlotte's Web and The Little House on the Prairie books. Mm. And what happened is I believe that I just Googled her. I was curious about her Mm. Mm -hmm. and I fell into a Wikipedia hole. You know how that happens where you 
yeah. with someone, and then an hour and a half later, you're you delve into a, a lot of the details of the thing or the person. Right. And her Wikipedia page intrigued me because of the fact that, well, at first it was very dramatic. You know, she died very young. Right. And she died at the age of 42 of a aneurysm, a, a blood clot. But beyond that, you know, there were certain details, her, the way, you know, the way in she, which she lived her life. She was quite an iconoclast. She was somewhat wild, you know, spent money. She was profligate. Yeah. <laughs> she had a, a number of relationships, including a, a decade-long relationship with another woman. And then again, there was that untimely death. So, mm. you know, a Wikipedia page can only tell you so much. I looked to find a find out if there were any books about her and there was a biography of her that had been published in 1992. So, you know, this was 20 some years prior and I bought it and read it. And that's where I really kind of got the, the, the outline of not just the trajectory of her life, but you know, the specifics and yeah. the specifics around how she began working in children's literature and what was going on in children's literature at the time that she began writing books. Yeah, well, I can tell you that I will confess that I am in the category of Bruce Handy, whom you cite in the article, <laughs> who had this idea of her as probably being, you know, of what we might call a stereotypical librarian type with gray or white hair and glasses. And I think his phrase was a woman with an ample lap. And yeah, one was. one look at the picture of her is enough to make me realize I was completely mistaken. I mean, she looks so young and vibrant and and so different from this. I was imagining kind of a, a stern-looking, maybe religious woman, maybe a little bit dull. And what your article opened up for me was how much of Goodnight Moon in particular was not out of her not having a lot of imagination or not being a very good storyteller or being a little bit finger-wagging, but it was actually a strategy for how to reach children mm -hmm. and how to reach children of that age. And and then to hear that her life was what it was like, it was just a, a fascinating article. I, I want to encourage people to go read it because I was, I was pretty stunned by it. But let's talk a little bit more, I guess, about the book and, and the one that you bought for your friend. What were you buying that for, or what did you have in mind when you purchased that one? Did you think it was going to be kind of a nice bedtime story or that it would be different from the other books that were going over to your friend? I thought it would be a nice bedtime story because it had been a bedtime story for me when I was young. It had mm. been read to me. And mm -hmm. usually usually when I was being read to as a child, it was it was in the context of, of going to sleep or trying to get me to go to sleep. Yeah. And the thing about that book is it communicates a, a sense of safety and warmth, mm -hmm. but also of adventure. The the little fur child, and, and I want to be clear, although in the in the illustrations it looks like a little bear, she never identifies the little fur child or his parents as, as a particular type of animal. They're just little furry animals. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the little fur child, you know, goes out to play in the day and encounters a number of things. He plays with some some insects, like a ladybug and a flying insect. He kneels down in front of a, a stream and watches the fish go by, makes a, a, a little visit to a, a relative, but really is just living freely in the natural environment in which he already lives, but doing so alone. And at the end of the book, he comes back to his home where he's fed supper and tucked into bed and his parents sing to him. So there's there, there's this, I wouldn't say a push and pull, but, but there's a representation of both freedom for a child, but also the, the comfort and safety that, that comes with returning to the family home. And so 
that was what I remembered about the book. That's what still intrigues me about the book. And, you know, it's just, it was just one of those things where I remembered it very fondly and wanted to pass it on to, to a friend. Yeah. Were you able to remember it before you found it in the bookstore and opened it up? Were you able to, did you have a memory of it from when you were, let's say three or four? (laughs) Yeah, I had one memory of it, which is an illustration, one of the illustrations where the little fur child is is running for home. The, The sun is starting to go down and the, the sky is kind of a, a blaze with pinks and orange, and he's making his way back, you know, to his little his little home, which is in the hollow of a tree. There's a little red door. Like I remembered, I remembered illustrations, yeah, um, and the way that they made me feel more than the actual words. And yeah, I just I, I just wanted to to share that with a, a child. And you know, quite frankly, after that, I started buying it for other friends with children because at the time that I bought it for the first friend. I was in my 30s or maybe early 40s, and it was a, a time when a lot of my friends were having kids. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of them were having yep. kids kind of back to back. There was just a, a, an influx of, of of kids. So it was something that I bought numerous times to, to give away. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I do not remember having Goodnight Moon as a kid. I don't think I did, but mm-hmm. I certainly had it for my kids when they were that age. And mm-hmm. I just asked them at dinner, uh, my friend, or my friend, my son had a friend over. And so I asked my two kids and her if they remembered Goodnight Moon. And they all did. They all said they knew it. And I said, well, what do you remember about it? And they all kind of scrunched up their face. And then... They said, green, <laughs> they said, mm. green mm-hmm. room, there's a green room and it gets dark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the only thing they could really remember. But it was that feeling of safety, comfort, you know, the tranquility of it. They couldn't remember any of the, I thought they might remember some of the, you know, the cow jumping over the moon or the brush or the comb yeah. or, or the the little old woman who's whispering hush or they couldn't remember any of that. It was just the feel that they had when they were yeah. listening to it, which it seems like that's something that that Margaret Wise Brown was trying to tap into. She was conscious that that was the effect that that kids would that would resonate with kids. Yeah, I, I think I think that, you know, she was you know trying to communicate just like she did in Little Fur Family, a, a sense of, of comfort and warmth and safety, while at the same time, well, in Goodnight Moon, I guess, it, I'm not quite sure how to say this, but there's something kind of, there's something kind of existential about it. You know, this, yeah. this little bunny is in this enormous room, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes the, the, little, the little old bunny is sitting across from him, and sometimes she's not there, and it, it, you know, it feels like he's being in, enveloped. It's just, a, you know, for those who have the book in front of them or remember this the room is is absurdly large yeah, <laughs> for yeah. a, a, a child <laughs> a child's bedroom so there's something about like being lost in in the bedroom and and you know the the incantation or meditation yeah, of right. re- saying good night to objects makes the space less intimidating and more personal so it's almost as if she was starting off with a depiction of the kind of larger, wider world and, and then narrowing it down to the personal and, and, and objects in the room. And in fact, one of the, one of the pieces that I read about her suggested that she had as a child with her sister bid good night to objects in their room. And that also as an adult, she had 
used that as a technique to try and center herself when she was feeling mm. anxious or, or, or depressed yeah. as a way to just be, be present in the moment to acknowledge, you know, the sound outside her window of taxis, you know, the fact that there was a lamp across the room, you know, things like that. So although she claimed, and I have no reason to disbelieve her, that, that the book came to her in a dream, it, it does feel like this was something that she was familiar with and, yeah. and felt in her own life was, was centering and allowed her to be present. And I think that's, you know, what she was trying to impart with that book. But, you know, quite frankly, I don't remember, I didn't remember the, the words either. Yeah. I remembered the feeling and I remembered the, the pictures and I remembered the room getting dark. And I remembered that there was a, a dollhouse across the room from the, the baby bunny that was illuminated which felt both cozy, but also, I don't know, maybe a little, yeah. <laughs> there's a tiny bit of something sinister about it. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really evoking a feeling. And I think that the school of thought out of which she came in terms of children's literature and the sorts of stories that, that appeal to children of a particular age, you know, which was called the here and now school, she made very clear that although the here and now school was, focused on the everyday, that, that, that it asserted that for young children, the everyday objects and, and things around them were more appealing and sparked more imagination than, let's say, fairy tales or folk tales. Margaret Weiss Brown you know, certainly came out of that school, but she also, I wouldn't say protested, but asserted that you know, there needed to be emotion attached to that. So in addition to, let's say, telling the story of a fire truck going by and the, the five little firemen on it and you know, their attempts to put out a fire in a, in a nearby home and, you know, dogs barking and all of those sorts of things that, you know, feel real to, to a kid because those things actually happen, that there needed to be a certain tone. And, you know, I, I could go on here and I'll just let you ask questions yeah. <laughs> so that I don't keep rambling. But yeah, it's very meditative. And. I feel like I'm so glad that you said that she also used that as an adult because I feel like that's the thing that parents and young parents probably miss or, you know, could use a reminder of when they sit down with Goodnight Moon because I think a lot of people are frustrated with it. They want to throw it against the wall and they mm. think, why do I have to read mm. this again? Nothing's happening. It's, you know, it's it's so primitive. My kid loves it. He or she asks for it, but it, it, we're not really learning as much as we could or, you know, and it's this thing of, I heard a, an interview the other day. I don't know why I thought of this. I guess it, it seems analogous to me, but I heard an interview with Sting the other day and he was talking about songwriting and he said, you know, today songs, they don't tend to have a bridge in a pop song. There tends to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and it's more intense. And he said, I always viewed the bridge as therapy that that was where you reset, that it wasn't just, you know, and then you would maybe change key or you would maybe change the lyrics or something would happen afterwards. But it was this moment that gave you a chance to catch your breath mentally and clear out some space for yourself. And it made me think that's really what it, what I was doing when I was reading Goodnight Moon at night. You know, all day long, we learned, you know, kids are just like sponges and we learn the alphabet and the colors and every day we'd go outside and we were living in New York City. So we were just subjected to all of these sights and sounds. And I was pointing things out and and my yeah. son was asking questions and their brains were just on overload. And so were mine. And so to come back and then to say, now we're just going to read something that's going, you know, you're mm -hmm. you're going to know it. 
You're going to know the things in it. We're just going to to relax and let ourselves settle down. And parents can benefit from that as well as the kids in kind of just having this moment of meditation and and the hush of it. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's be- it's beautiful if you let it be. <laughs> yeah, and that's really interesting because yeah, like um, dialing down the the. <laughs> the input yeah. you know, at the end of the day and to, to center a child and, and make him or her, you know, more, more present in the moment is something that I think that book definitely accomplishes. It, it, it might be why, or what I admire about that book it might be, might be a really weird connection, but I've always been fascinated by people who are birders, you know, mm. because they are stopping to look at something yeah, right. or some things that are all around us right. all the time that most of us do not stop to be present for and to take in. And I think that there's something about good night moon, which is, you know, the, the focus on the objects, the taking, the taking them in and the you know, regarding them and, and then wishing them good night that, that feels somewhat similar to birding. I mean, again, I'm making it, it yeah. sounds like a very weird connection, but, but I do, I do think there's something there. And then, you know, she has some absurdist, elements in there like what what is mush right <laughs> is, 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 night mush? is that oatmeal like why is there mush on the table um yeah. you know isn't dinner time over <laughs> right and, you know why would it be in a bedroom and then there's that line you know which you know going back to my feeling that there's some element of it that's existential <laughs> you know there's the line on a blank page that says good night nobody yeah. which i wouldn't say it's ominous it's just surprising you know yeah, it it it, it, make, it makes itself known, and it's hard to forget. Yeah, and kids love stuff like that, little surprises like mm-hmm. that. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is great. Let's take a quick break. The thing about Margaret Wise Brown, she didn't have kids herself. She wasn't much of a a school teacher. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about her and how she came to write this book. Okay, we are back with Anna Holmes, who's written a stunning piece in The New Yorker about children's book author Margaret Wise Brown. And we've been talking about Goodnight Moon in particular. Anna, I left you with this question about who she was. And, you know, when we talk about Goodnight Moon, as we described it, it could have been written by a woman with an ample lap. And yet here's (laughs) Margaret Wise Brown, who described herself as peas whirling around in a kettle. And she she was more bohemian and more Greenwich Village and more like a abstract expressionist painter or a poet or a folk singer or something than a what we might associate with a, a, a school teacher type. So mm-hmm. who was she? How did she get to this place where she could write so many children's books and take this approach in particular? Well, I can answer the question and then I also can't answer it because like who was she is is, is part of the, is, is a question that I was really trying to answer when I was researching her. And I don't know that I succeeded. She's very mysterious and um, there was, a, a, and, and even though I spent, you know, many hours in her archives and reading her diaries and her letters and got some better sense of her, 
she still really remained very elusive. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I went looking for some audio of her. I just wanted to get a sense of what her voice was like. And I, you know, there wasn't any that existed. So I, I just want to say that, that like part of her appeal to me was that I couldn't pin her down. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't think that what had been written about her had pinned her down either. Yeah. So it was, it, there was an element of like detective work and an attempt on my part. And I'm not sure that I succeeded. In fact, I'm, I am sure that I didn't succeed. Do you think, did she not know, or was she trying, was she deflecting? Did she not reveal mm. her real self or was she just kind of always trying to find herself? And so she ended up kind of veering in a lot of different directions. What made it so hard to figure out? What makes it so hard to pin her down? Yeah, I think I think you I think you just described some of it. But 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 you know there were people in her life, and this was a common theme that that would just describe her as being mysterious as well, and, mm. and being very hard to pin down. And I think that's because she had she probably was deflecting a bit. She was interested in many many things, and you know dipped her hand into uh, other creative arenas, like she was trying to write adult fiction. She painted, um, in addition to writing children's books. So uh, it, it, it's just, it, it's hard for me to describe why I feel that she was hard to pin down, but it's just a, it's just a feeling. And again, even looking at her personal papers, you get a better sense of who she was and the randomness of her, uh, the occasional randomness of her mind, you know, especially when she's you know, scribbling down drafts of books or drafts of stories, some of which are a bit surprising. Like there were a couple stories in her archive that I was a little surprised by because they were quite dark. Mm. One was um, called The Glorious Death of a Mouse. And, <laughs> and it related the story of a, of a mouse being picked up by a raptor. And then, you know, um, the raptor flo- flies away and the mouse is, is looking down and at the countryside and, you know, re- regarding things from the from the air from a different vantage point, and then he is dropped. And you know, there isn't a description of what happens when he, sorry, hits the ground. But <laughs> but you know, it's called the glorious death of a mouse. It's a bit grim. Yeah, right. And there was another one about a kitten. Uh, I forget the title of it, but there was another one about a kitten that got crushed in the hands of a child accidentally. But just you know, and those things didn't see the light of day. I think for obvious reasons but you know some of those sorts of things spoke to a darkness in her or at least a willingness to go there but yeah it was, she was just it was, she was, it was just hard to i don't know if i'd say it was hard to reconcile things for example the fact that she didn't have children is not maybe somewhat surprising but i don't think it's scandalous right. you know even though women in that in that era were socialized to and still are to pursue marriage and 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 motherhood she, you know, she didn't, uh, and I'm not sure. It's unclear whether that was because she chose not to marry or have children, or she happened to not marry or have children. You know, she had a couple of, uh, of engagements, and you know, at times seemed to suggest that she was open to having children. But I didn't get the sense that she felt that her life was lacking because of the because of the the absence of of both, you know, a, a marriage and 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 children. So. Just to circle back around, she feels mysterious. I was really heartened <laughs> and relieved to find out that many of her contemporaries and peers described her that way. It yeah. made me feel like it wasn't just me being crazy. It, she, that she really was not just an iconoclast, but so multifaceted as to be hard to pin down. And, and you know, one 
anecdote, I guess you could say, is that in the in the home she owned on an island off the coast of Maine, which she decorated in a kind of very strange, uh, whimsical way, she had a wall facing a window, and the window itself faced the water. And on the wall, she had um, not shards of, of mirrors, but a collection of mirrors so that the light coming in the window would reflect itself in the room as to make it brighter, but also so that in the images of the mirrors themselves, you would see the outside and you'd see the water and the trees all from different vantage points. And I felt like that was a good metaphor mm. for who she was. Yeah. Hard to, hard to kind of pin down, but that you were seeing different facets of her when you, when you looked at her. And I guess, you know, when you read her work. I wonder if part of that sort of, helped her have such insight into children and and the child's mind. It, it is this sort of contradiction in a way that I guess the way we've been describing it is Goodnight Moon is almost like a, a way of calming someone down who has this huge universe, you know, that it's, it's a big mm-hmm. room, but you can say goodnight to just one object at a time and make it smaller. And, mm-hmm. and she almost seems to be saying... We need to recognize how vast the world is for the child, and and mm-hmm. maybe she's remembering how vast, you know, or she's thinking how vast it is for her as well. She seemed, even though she didn't have kids, I wonder if that almost helped give her a insight into children. She would interview them, right, and she would sort of right. see them. She wasn't responsible for a child, but she would be able to just listen, and and she she had that brilliant observation where she said. When you talk to a child, he might not be listening, but he's feeling the fur collar on your coat. I know. You know, just isn't, a, that, isn't that a great line? Yeah. <laughs> and most parents, I love that line. Most parents would probably say, "Okay, I need to correct this behavior, right? I need to say, pay attention when someone is asking you a question. Pay attention. Stop getting so distracted. You need to focus." And she seems to be saying, "Let's." Let's live with children as they are, where they are exploring these things. And then let's aim our writing or our interactions with them at who they really are. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, to indulge their fascination with their five senses. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, that that line about a child may not be listening to you when reading a story, but feeling the fur collar of your coat is, is you know, really about touch and and sight and you know perhaps hearing or listening isn't isn't as important of a a sense in that moment but she really was she really wanted to evoke sensory uh, memories in in children but also in in herself i think you know i think that she was was returning to her own childhood and the kind of delights and surprises and investigations that she herself had and it's interesting when you talk about you know, the the great green room, I, what I noticed in, in a lot of her other writings, not necessarily published ones, was that the idea of something great and the idea of something green and the idea of something great and green was a motif that I saw in some of her poems. She talked about a great green field. She talked mm-hmm. about great green forests. And, and so there seemed to be something there. And also when, you know, when reading her biography, there's a, not a, not a lot, but there's a fair amount in the beginning about the ways in which she played by herself in the woods near her home. She grew, she grew up mm. partly on the North shore of Long Island. So, you know, the, the, the interaction with the, the natural world and, and the ability to play by herself and, and, and 
let her imagination run wild. I think you see that in little fur family. I think that that's what that fur child is doing. Mm. And certainly, you know, speaking only for myself, some of my greatest memories, because I grew up before iPads, yeah, <laughs> some right. of my greatest memories are, are doing exactly that, you know, playing outside. And she would lie down. You had this detail in your article that when she wanted to remember what it felt like to be small like a child, she would lie down in the grass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She would lie down in the grass to try and you know, orient herself to the point of view of not necess- just necessarily a child, but a small animal. Because what you'll uh, notice in her yeah. books is that there were very few human beings. Right. They're mostly animals. And whether they're animals that are animals we know of, like rabbits or cats, or in the case of Little Fur Family, you know, um, fur animals of some, of some unknown sort, you know, she seemed to prefer using animals as her protagonists. In fact, mm. I, I actually can't really think of a, of a book where, where, where she had a human being as, as a protagonist. There, there was one little book called, I don't know if it's called Five Little Firemen. I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier in our conversation. And, and that's about human beings who are going to go put out a fire. But, you know, she seemed to return again and again to especially rabbits. Yeah. which was quite, I don't know if the word is ironic, but she also hunted rabbits yeah. on foot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she, <laughs> just like with animals, she seemed to be and described herself as being unsentimental about children. And, you know, I think you have to ask, well, how did she define sentimentality or being unsentimental? Because it isn't necessarily that her books feel sentimental, but they certainly seem fascinated with, with, with childhood and with children. And, you know, you mentioning the, her, her, reorienting herself to the level of a child or a a small animal, you know, one of the techniques that she used while she was talking to children and as she put it, chasing leads, which is an interesting phrase. Mm. It feels like, you know, she's a literary detective. She had them lie down on cots at, at the, at the nursery school where she was at least initially studying to be a teacher and she would ask them to free associate. So there was this one example I came across where she asked the children, What's the quietest and quickest thing you can think of? And they responded with things like a, a kitten paddling its paws through the grass, electricity moving around the world. One yeah. child said eggs because they're food. <laughs> so the responses were very creative, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and surprising because I think if you ask an adult, what's the quietest and quickest thing you could think of? they probably wouldn't say electricity <laughs> right. or, 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 egg, or eggs. Yeah. And so there was like a delight, a delight in imagination and a delight in words that I think she both incited within the children she was talking to, but also she herself felt and had. And I think that's evident in, in a lot of her books. Yeah. But her, her fascination with children really comes across. It's so interesting. Around the same time that I was reading this book a million times to my son, he was probably three or four. And I remember asking him once, or no, he asked me, he said, hey, dad, what's the most disgusting sandwich that you can think of? (laughs) And I said, oh, you know, um, how about a peanut butter and mustard sandwich? And, you know, I thought he would, (laughs) I thought he would groan or retch or something. And he was just silent. And then he kind of nodded. And I said, well, did you have an idea? What were you thinking would be the most disgusting sandwich? And he said, garbage truck and hair. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, you know, and, and what I think about, what I thought about, I thought about that story 
when I read your article. And what I was thinking was, what's so interesting in retrospect is not just that he had a wild imagination and that kids do, and that's wonderful, and we're all kind of used to it, but just the way he heard my response and then just quietly nodded. And it's almost like what I'm guessing was going through his mind was, yeah, that's how grownups think, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like it's not mm-hmm. peanut butter and mm-hmm. jelly. It's peanut butter mm-hmm. and mustard. And mm-hmm. here I was, you know, like that can't be the most disgusting thing he's thinking of, but it would maybe be the most disgusting thing that would fit between two slices of bread. And okay, it's a sandwich. Mm-hmm. So maybe garbage truck and hair wasn't wasn't a good answer. You know, like he's he's figuring that kind of thing out. And in a way, it's a shame because, you know, the the creative person, maybe Margaret Wise Brown was the, the rare example of an adult who could still think in terms of garbage truck and hair, but who also recognized the the, uh, you know, the tension between the way a child would answer a question like that or think about a question like that and the way the grownups would try to to steer them into something that's a little more uh, familiar to us and a little more, maybe a little more comforting. Mm-hmm. There's there's a section in the piece in which I kind of briefly go into the fact that she was most taken by the idea of writing for five-year-olds. She mm. really liked writing for five-year-olds. And she yeah. said, and I'm just going to quote her, um, she said, at five, you reach a point not to be achieved again. Um, later, she said that a, a child of that age enjoys a keenness and awareness that will likely be subdued out of him later in life, um, yeah. which is, you know, a little depressing <laughs> yeah, think about right. it, but, you know, it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. But I, I, I was very fascinated by the fact that she was so fascinated by five-year-olds in particular, because they have a certain amount of language and let's say a three-year-old doesn't, but they're not, you know, full on, well, they're children, but they're not, you know, they're, they're, they still retain a lot of their earlier years at that age and, um, and add to that, you know, the, the ability to communicate their fascination with things and tap into their imaginations in a way that maybe an eight year old or nine year old wouldn't, um, because, you know, as, as kids get older and I should clarify here that I don't have kids, it seems to me that, that as they get older, they become more distracted, um, from their own five senses. You know, they are, they're asked to focus their energies on things really outside of themselves and that there's something unfortunate about that, although, although, you know, um, universal. Right. Right. Ah, it's so, it's just sort of endlessly fascinating to me, especially because she just seems to have, have caught this lightning in a bottle or, or captured this, this creative tension. I mean, the, the goodnight moon has been so imitated and so mocked and (laughs) there's all of this, but it, there's nothing quite like it. And I, do you have any any ideas as to why that book has succeeded and is still on the the shelves of of most nurseries even this many years later? Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question that I don't have an answer for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than the fact that it it really successfully evokes a mood, and 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 you know we discussed that earlier. You know the, the memories of of people former children uh, of that book tend to be about a mood or about the pictures rather than the words. So that would be my, my first guess. And, you know, she, she crafted that book in a very specific, careful way, although she claimed that she dreamt it and then wrote it down when she was, uh, after she had awoken the next morning, she did, you know, take a significant considerable amount of time to write and rewrite her books. And I think they're deceptively simple she was really influenced by the 
kind of poetic prose of Gertrude Stein, you know, repetition, um, mm. for example. Yes. And you can see evidence of that in, in that book. You can certainly see evidence of her fascination with modern art mm. um, because the illustrator that she chose uh, for that book and for a couple of other ones had, had studied with, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his name, Leger, mm. <laughs> in, in France and was, you know, using a lot of very bold, flat colors. Yeah. In in his work. And and you see that in, in Good Night Moon, less so in The Runaway Bunny, which he also illustrated. That that seems to have a little more depth of, of perspective. Yeah. But you know, she was very intentional about the fact that she was both influenced and 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 responding to what was going on in, in modernist art and, and modernist literature at the time. Yeah. And that rhythm, the sound and the rhythm, and like you said, Gertrude Stein, Virginia Woolf, I think you also said was one of her influences. Just the, yeah. the way that it's, uh, you can tell that she caught, that she was very focused on the sound of the words as much as the content of them. That it, when you read it, mm-hmm. it just sort of flows. You feel like you're, you're traveling down a lazy river or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great, yeah, that's a great way of, of putting it. Totally. A kind of lazy river, river that you, know, you feel the kind of ups and downs and they, they lull you into a sense of safety. And I guess in the case of, well, if, for it, it, with the hopes of most parents <laughs> lull children into, into sleep. Yeah. Now her success seemed to enable her, I guess it was sort of a restless lifestyle do you think she was happy? That is also a great question. I think she mm. had moments of happiness. I yeah. think she, you know, talks and other people talked about her moments of, of unhappiness. And I think that it seemed to me that during the, the decade-long relationship um, with the older woman, whose name was Michael Strange, that there were a lot of unhappy moments. I think that was a somewhat turbulent, tempestuous relationship. It also um, happened to coincide with the, the years of her most successful books. And, and and I don't know that I would, I, I can't draw a direct line between that relationship and, and those books, but I think that it would be stupid not to assume that whatever was going on in her life was influencing what she was writing. And, you know, the, the papers that, her papers that exist in a number of archives, they don't come across to me as, she doesn't come across as being particularly happy but she also doesn't come across as being particularly unhappy. She'll, she'll relate things here and there about nightmares she had, but uh, I don't know that having nightmares and, and, you know, perhaps being unhappy. the writing. Mm. She did tell, I believe she told her editor, Ursula Nordstrom, who was a famous children's book editor. I think she told her that what made her able to write the books that she wrote and to intuit children's feelings and needs and captured those on the page was also something that made her profoundly unhappy. In fact, if, you know, just quoting from the piece, Ursula Nordstrom later recalled Brown's telling her that the very temperament that allowed her to write beautiful children's books, her sensitivity to tremors of feeling could also make her profoundly unhappy. And so I just, I just get the sense that she was not, not just complicated, but, you know, had a bit of ennui, had, had depressive, anxious. Yeah. Uh, elements to her life and and you know perhaps the writing of the books was a just like bidding objects good night perhaps the writing of most of her books what was a way for her to center herself and and bring herself into the present um the here and now and to soothe some of her um 
depressive and anxious tendencies. Mm. Well, the piece is called The Radical Woman Behind Goodnight Moon, and it's available in The New Yorker, both print and online versions. Anna Holmes, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Anna Holmes, wow, what a writer. My thanks to her for joining us today. You can find her article about Margaret Wise Brown in The New Yorker. What a magazine. And my thanks to dear Margaret Wise Brown. I hope she has found some tranquility in that great green room we will all join someday. She has certainly contributed her share of tranquility here on Earth, as I can attest. Manhattan outside, buzzing and thumping and screaming crackling with activity, and inside, me in the growing darkness, reading to a boy in a crib, his busy mind settling in for sleep. Good night, son. And good night, listeners. My thanks to all of you for joining me today as well, especially those of you in Iceland. Good night, Iceland. Your moon is cooler than ours, like everything else in that dreamscape of yours. I'm Jack Wilson, closing the pages and turning off the lights and quietly closing the door. Except for this theme song. I'll be turning the volume up on that. It helps me creep away with those tears in my eyes. Because you're all getting older and you'll leave me someday, but for now, we have these moments together, don't we? So let's just... Zero in on the here and the now and say good night. Maybe we'll let the theme song fade away quietly this time. Right? There's a departure. Let it fade away. Good night, microphone. Good night, song, and good night, fears. And the odd little man who is smiling through tears. Good night, you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.